0: It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On this episode of Newts World, the highest levels of government have been infiltrated by an anti democratic deep state that can be defeated by refocusing our national security mission and relentlessly defending the truth. In his new book, Government Gangsters, Kash Patel, a former top official in the White House, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and the Department of Justice, pulls back the curtain on the deep state, revealing the major players and tactics within the permanent government bureaucracy, which has spent decades stripping power away from the American people and their elected leaders. Based on his firsthand knowledge, Patel reveals how we can defeat the deep state, reassert self-government, and restore our democracy. Here to talk about his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Kash Patel. He served as the Chief of Staff to the Department of Defense, where his responsibilities included implementing the Secretary of Defense's mission involving 3 million-plus employees, a $740 billion budget, and $2 trillion in assets. Prior to his experience at the Pentagon, Mr. Patel served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterterrorism on the National Security Council. Cash, welcome and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, it's
3: great to be with you today. Thank you for having me on the show.
2: I'm curious... As I remember, your parents wanted you to become a medical doctor, but instead you became a defense attorney. I mean, how did that happen?
3: Best laid plan, sir. So I went to college and I went to see my school counselor on day one of college. And I said, I guess I'm pre-med. And he laid out the next eight years of my life for me on that day. And I said, I don't think that's for me. And I just sort of followed whatever interested me thereafter. And the law was what seemed to be it. And that's what led me there.
2: I was told that part of your transition into being a defense lawyer came from being a caddy at the Garden City Country Club. How did that intersection work?
3: You do your homework, Mr. Speaker. Yeah. So, you know, I caddied from when I was 13 to 21 to help pay for college. And the foursome that I would caddy for on a regular basis at this country club on Long Island were all private criminal defense attorneys. And I thought their stories were really cool about how they would go to court and do these trials and have these exciting cases. And in the back of my mind, I guess it just sort of settled there for a while that I found that really interesting. But I never thought I would become a public defender. I thought I would become the private defense attorney guy. And that just never happened.
2: So I'm curious, when you wrote Government Gangsters, and I remember talking with you both in your White House period, and then uh, the defense weapon And you know, an immense amount, but government gangsters was delayed in publishing because the Defense Department was holding on to it, you know, to make sure no classified information got out. And you ended up having to sue to get the book out. Was this a deliberate dragging their feet to try to block the book from coming out?
3: Yeah, in my opinion, Mr. Speaker, I think what they wanted was a blockade to prevent the manuscript from coming out because they don't want the things printed that I put in there. And they use typical government excuses like, oh, we sent it out. It's being reviewed. DOJ, FBI, DOD, NSA. Everybody's got to look at this thing. And I said, I understand the process, but it usually takes two to three months. So I actually knew they weren't going to move until we took them to federal court. So I sued the Biden administration and all the agencies and departments. To release my manuscript. And wouldn't you know, within weeks after our lawsuit, they came back and they said, oh, it's good to go now. And they only redacted 0.05% of my book. It's literally the same six words eight times over. It was laughable. That was it. That
2: was it. So how long did it take them to find these six words?
3: Knowing what the six words are and having my background, my attorneys and I found it so hysterical that they pick these words because they are not classified whatsoever. It just points to the name of an entity that's already in the public sector and sphere. And I think that's what they utilized in front of the court to justify their delay. In the nine months preceding the lawsuit, the FBI, which I'm very critical of in the book, and Chris Ray had had the manuscript for nine months and they hadn't looked at it. But once I filed the lawsuit, They cleared my manuscript without redactions in 24 hours. So we know they were just playing games to prevent the release of the information in there.
2: Were you surprised first when you were at the House Intelligence Committee and then when you were at State and Defense? Was the deep state a lot bigger thing than you expected?
3: Way more. I mean, I just thought in my entire tenure in government service, some 16 years, there was going to be some bad actors along the way. We've always seen some level of government corruption, but I thought it was a one off here and there. And then when Devin Nunes brought me on to run the Russiagate investigation after my tenure at the Justice Department, my first in at DOD and intelligence I was floored as a national security prosecutor who used the FISA process and the 702 process to manhunt terrorists around the world. I was absolutely besides myself that a deep Department of Justice would use that process to investigate a presidential campaign and his surrogates. And then when I dug into it, I couldn't believe how many people had gotten together to lie to a federal court, the FISA court, just so that they could get this surveillance warrant up. And the thing, I guess, as a former public defender that shocked me the most was the amount of evidence of innocence, of exculpatory evidence these individuals at DOJ and FBI had excluded from the warrant application itself, which launched the entire Russiagate thing. And if that weren't bad enough, I thought, wow, look at that deep state. The deep state that came in behind those individuals during the Trump administration to cover up, and I'm talking about Republicans, To cover it all up was even more shocking to me. We ended up fighting them more than I fought the Democrats and the deep staters that were committing this conduct. I didn't think in the United States of America that was possible, but that's what we uncovered.
2: I've recently started a series at the American Spectator going all the way back to World War II and the Soviet penetration of the system to try to outline the depths behind how we got to the current constitutional crisis. And it strikes me that it really is a constitutional crisis. I mean, you were working for an administration which the bureaucracy was actively trying to undermine and weaken, despite the fact that the American people had elected it. I mean, didn't you find that sort of stunning?
3: From a constitutional perspective, you're absolutely right. How is it that Donald Trump, in during his administration, his appointed attorney general, his appointed FBI director, his appointed secretary of defense, and so many others, I would go into interagency meetings to execute the president's lawful authorities to issue the national security mission, whether it was hostage rescue, wiping out terrorists, taking out enemies and ending the forever wars. These individuals would come into the room. And say they had the mandate to block a lawful authority of the president of the United States. And I found that equally as shocking as I found the deep state. But then I dug a little deeper and I was trying to figure out why would you block the commander in chief's order? And it's the one thing that a lot of these government gangsters in Washington, D.C. have in common. They are always looking out for each other. And the institutions they serve rather than doing the job. And President Trump, the unique ability that he had when he came in was he not only promised and campaigned on doing things on the national security front, like securing the border and ending the war in Afghanistan and taking out terrorists, he did them. And in a shockingly high, Percentage. And I think that turned these individuals at the top against him because they didn't like his personality or they didn't like his style. And they continued this deep. They continued to kneecap his administration for almost two years with just the Russiagate investigation itself. I mean, we have to remind people but John Durham and our investigation on Capitol Hill found was there was no lawful authority to ever investigate Donald Trump in the first place. But we now know, and it's in the book. That the NSA was given a contract to actually tunnel into Donald Trump's White House and exploit email traffic that was going in and out of there. I mean, this is what these people signed off on because they were so hell bent on trying to find out information that didn't exist so they could satisfy the media. And that was a big problem was the media who hated Donald Trump. And they were trying to just serve them rather than serve their duties under the Constitution, as you outlined.
1: Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the
0: problem is that that paperwork,
1: as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution. I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March to the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March the Majority right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. Isn't there an almost incestuous relationship between the deep state and the news media? When I look, for example, at every study I've seen about the Russian hoax, you actually see FBI agents and intelligence agents giving the New York Times and the Washington Post stuff that's totally false, but that they're eager to print.
3: Yeah. And what we track in government gangsters and elsewhere is the coordinated leaks. One of the themes of the book is that I don't believe there are any coincidences in government and there is no deep state without the mainstream media, especially the DOJ and FBI and DOD during Russiagate and during other events leaked classified information to the media. Just look at bad actors like Adam Schiff and company, too, in Congress. So it's not just in the executive branch to uphold narratives that they wanted to take out donald trump i.e donald trump is a russian asset we know that's completely false but half of the united states of america thought that was the case and a lot of them still do because they watch the mainstream media a lot of the mainstream media also lied about the doj and fbi's conduct during russia gate to the fisa court and now we know unequivocally that they lied to get that application up and running and the problem we run into is When you stack these mainstream media narratives together that were authored by these deep state actors, people get past the truth. And two, three years later, when they learn about it, the mainstream media is coming up with their next iteration of an election rigging scam, like the 51 intelligence letter on Hunter Biden's laptop is just one example. And for me, that was the most undemocratic, unconstitutional thing i had ever seen. And by the way, that's what spawned the two tier system of justice. Nobody in that leaked classified information unlawfully was ever prosecuted for this five year window. And now you see what's happening to Donald Trump today and the disparate treatment by the attorney general and the FBI of him versus what so many in the deep state did. They got away with because they wanted to take out Donald Trump.
2: To what extent do the anti-Trump Republicans not understand what's going on?
3: I think they full well understand it. I think what they're trying to do is take them out. I think they, the entrenched class, and as part of a big problem of the government gangsters, is the folks that go into government, into these high-level positions, then Kareem out of government and get a golden parachute back into, say, the defense industrial complex. It's a very cyclical problem. And I think they're very aware of... The ethos they have is Washington, D.C. exists to serve us, not Donald Trump and his mission that when he put America first. And I'll give you a primetime example. We know that Rod Rosenstein, as the acting attorney general, signed the most bogus FISA warrant, one that was actually rescinded by the FISC itself. And we also know that FBI director Chris Wray helped him cover up the Russiagate scandal. These two individuals, along with Gina Haspel who was chief of station for the CIA in London when Russiagate was launched, she was the sole individual that authorized an overseas operation to collect intelligence against the president of the United States. These three individuals would get cabinet positions later in government. And two of these individuals, Rod Rosenstein and Chris Ray, would threaten Devin Nunes and I to surveil us. And what we found out five years later is Ray and Rosenstein actually did unlawfully surveil me, a senior congressional staffer on Capitol Hill, for doing our job. I mean, I filed a lawsuit on that just a week ago, and we could talk about that later. But the point of this is, do you know now today where Gina Haspel and Rod Rosenstein currently work? They work at Christopher Ray's old law firm. That's just one example of the cyclical nature of the seven figure payout and how these people stick together.
2: I saw a note about the number of people on the left who had left government office and got the right university, the right think tank. This part of why I'm writing this piece with The Spectator is that there is an interlocking ecosystem on the left that is just massive, and that you know you have somebody who writes a paper which then gets published by The New York Times, which then gets used by the Justice Department. I mean, all this stuff is circular and kind of surrounds the rest of us. In a way that is very hard to deal with.
3: And what they do is once they've put out the narrative underneath that narrative, as you described, they are going to take out the personnel and the people that are contradicting their disinformation campaign and the mainstream media. They don't do it alone. They do it in conjunction with these deep state actors, these government gangsters. I mean, you've been on the receiving end of some pretty severe vitriol and fake news attacks. I have as well and so many others that we know. And the hope is that they will ultimately utilize lawfare unconstitutionally against us. In the hopes that we just stop talking or that we stop providing support to, say, President Trump or the America First movement. I mean, they've come after us with subpoenas, with trumped up charges, and they'll never stop. And unless we take a stand and show the American people two things. One, that they are doing this because I think educating the American people that a deep state is not a right wing conspiracy. It's a reality that Russiagate actually happened and the cover up happened, that Hunter Biden's laptop is real information of crimes, that the 51 Intel letter is another example of election rigging. And there's a two tier system of justice when it comes to not just Donald Trump and how Joe Biden are treated in classified documents cases, but how we are all treated. That permeates down to the everyday American level And once you have that, the deep state is fully mobilized to come in and go after our communities and the conservative movement. That's what they want to do. Take out Donald Trump and kneecap the conservative movement. That's why the entrenched Republican class in Washington isn't a part of this movement, because they're working together with the deep state actors. They are the deep state to take us out. And that's part of the mission of the book is just to educate Americans that if you don't want to be fooled again during a presidential election cycle, you have to stop listening to the mainstream media and get your information elsewhere, like your great publications in the American Spectator.
2: Rasmussen just came out with a poll that 72% of the American people are concerned that the U.S. is becoming a police state, and that 46% are very concerned. Do you think that's a reasonable concern?
3: I think it's more than reasonable. I think one of the major issues I take up in government gangsters is how the justice system and intelligence communities have been weaponized to take out any individuals or groups that they think are a threat to their reign of power. And What I do in the book is lay out chapter and verse, how each agency and department has participated in that process. We've talked about a few up to this point. The one that we haven't talked about, I think the one of the biggest culprits, is the Department of Defense and the Defense Industrial Complex. I think they are worse than all the lobbying groups put together. They are the reason why we are sending $115 billion to the Ukraine unchecked. They are the reason we spent $2 trillion in Afghanistan. It's not a Republican or Democratic institution. The defense industrial complex, which does a lot of good, also does some of the most weaponized work in government. They will entrench people who are secretaries of defense to come out and get their golden parachute and $10 million payday. And that cycle will continue just so they can keep cutting the checks and getting Congress to keep funding these efforts. And if you dare to stand up against them, they will come after you with this police state. They will come after you with their partners at DOJ or the intelligence community and say, you know, Cash Patel is actually someone who is anti-American or a right wing nut. I mean, this is what these people write and they'll try to sue you. They'll try to subpoena you and they want you to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal fees just so you stop putting out the truth. And that to me can't happen we cannot be shut down we cannot be quieted we have to put the mission first and i think the fact that most people are leaving mainstream media and listening to your great show and other platforms to get their news shows us we're winning that battle but it's going to take some time
2: You've had such a wide range of fascinating background because you've seen things from the standpoint of the House and the Congress. You've seen things from the standpoint of the White House. You've seen things from our largest bureaucracy, the Defense Department. So you really can bring a lot to bear in analyzing and educating the rest of us. One of the fascinating examples was Benghazi because it both involves, I think, deliberate dishonesty by Obama and deliberate dishonesty about Clinton. And I know that you were deeply involved in looking at that. What's your take on how Benghazi was handled?
3: I was a national security prosecutor at the Department of Justice at the time, and I was the lead prosecutor for Maine Justice Headquarters Division on the Benghazi prosecutions. And to me, I thought, wow, we have to get this one right. This was an attack essentially on American soil in Libya that killed an ambassador and three great service members. And we had to go and out there and get the terrorists to do it. But I remember sitting down with then Attorney General Eric Holder and briefing him on how many terrorists we wanted to prosecute north of 20 because they were responsible for this horrible, tragic event of murder, murdering four Americans. And they wouldn't let us do it. He just said, no, we're just going to go after this one guy and that's it. And I was just blown away by it. What also occurred out of the Benghazi scandal that I talk about in the book is that's where Hillary Clinton's email scandal came from. She was secretary of state during that process. And when we went in there to go look at the discovery materials to make sure the defendants had due process, that's where that information all pulled out of. And I think that's what started it. And The problem I had with it was that it was handled improperly, not just by the Department of Justice and the FBI, but that for a political reason, we let many terrorists go because they didn't want to prosecute those individuals for some reason. And the one individual that they did prosecute, now we're able to fast forward and talk about it, Katala, is an individual that's going to shortly be released from prison, you heard that right. The individual that the one guy that we prosecuted from Baghazi got such a low level prison sentence because this DOJ under Attorney General Holder bungled the prosecution and wouldn't listen to the facts and the law and politicized the Department of Justice. So that – I believe they did it so that they could support a Hillary Clinton for president narrative because she was the leading candidate at the time and this happened on her watch and they didn't want it to go to Donald Trump, of course. And that was the original sin for me that preceded Russiagate even. That's why I think Benghazi is so critical. But most importantly, we failed the American people. There are still a dozen or so people involved in that murder in that terrorist attack that remain free because – The Obama administration refused to prosecute them.
2: Why do you think that Holder did not want to prosecute him?
3: I mean, he never gave me a specific reason, but my sense of it was that it would cause too much information to come out. As I alluded to, the Hillary Clinton email saga started from the Benghazi prosecutions in the discovery process and looking at all the information that had gone back and forth. And I also think that remember, you know, the whole Susan Rice ordeal about her lying to the world and saying it had to do with some newspaper burning an effigy of the Prophet Muhammad for those people that are of the Muslim faith. And it was a total lie. It was a complete and total lie. And I think the Justice Department was weaponized to run cover for the Democratic Party. Maybe back then people thought that was a crazy right-wing talking point, but now we know they've established a track record of it from Benghazi to Russiagate to Hunter Biden to Joe Biden and any January 6th prosecution, really. We've seen not any, but most January 6th prosecutions, we've seen their disparate treatment.
2: You know, part of what really changed my view of this whole fight was reading Andy McCarthy's book, Ball of Collusion, where he says flatly that on... I think it's January 7th, 2017, Obama hosts a meeting of justice, FBI, and intelligence to talk through how to basically cripple the Trump administration. And it hit me that, I guess because he got such extraordinarily favorable, protective coverage by the news media, Obama's really at the heart of a lot of this. These are his appointees. These are his decisions. Susan Rice did not go out there without his knowing about it. Why do you think Obama, one, do you think I'm right that he is, in fact, much more culpable than people have been saying? And two, why do you think he gets away with it? I do
3: agree with you that a lot of this starts and ends with President Obama. And it's the cyclical nature of the deep state. You just highlighted the most critical meeting that we analyzed when I was running the Russiagate investigation. The one word Brennan, then the head of the CIA, goes in and briefs Obama and his team, including Justice Department officials, that Hillary Clinton had started this operation to take out Donald Trump based on bogus fake intelligence. They knew that from jump. And they, Clapper, Brennan, Obama, Clinton and company, wanted to ensure that they kneecapped Donald Trump on the way into the White House because they felt that Donald Trump took away the election from them. They, the deep state, were rising up to go against Donald Trump because he knew they would be exposed. And so I think you're 100% right that it goes to Barack Obama. As to the why and the allowed cover-up, it's because the entrenched bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. became so wed to Barack Obama and his presidency and they got so rewarded in monetary fashions, in position fashions, that they had to support whatever Obama put out there. Case in point, just to bring this full circle, just this past week or the week before, Brennan and Clapper, the two individuals who lied to Congress about surveilling the United States Senate and about collecting metadata on American citizens Both of these cabinet secretaries were now just recently appointed by the DHS Secretary Mayorkas to intelligence positions to publicly go out and speak a narrative that they know is false, but they now know that Donald Trump is on the rise again. And these two individuals, it's no surprise, the guys that launched Russiagate and the cover operation are now being placed back in power in a public position to take out Donald Trump. And that's exactly what they're going to do. It's shocking to me that they still have a security clearance. It's one of the measures that we talk about in government gangsters that needs to be utilized to kneecap these individuals and preclude them from earning a living once they violated their constitutional oaths of office. But it's no coincidence that these guys are back and it's no coincidence You can bet my bottom dollar that they're talking to President Barack Obama on how to go forward and what they should do in the Democratic Party, because I think they're smart enough to realize the Democrats don't even want Joe Biden to run. And now they're figuring out a way for the Republicans to do their dirty work for him by impeaching Joe Biden.
2: How likely is it, do you think, that the 14th Amendment can be used to actually keep Trump off the ballot?
3: Zero. If any American, and this is a great example of how dominant the fake news is, and how dominant disinformation is. Everybody listening to this podcast should just open up their pocket constitution and read the first sentence of the 14th Amendment. Do you know the only position that does not appear listed in the 14th Amendment? President. The 14th Amendment lists the vice presidency. The 14th Amendment lists senators. It lists House of Representatives and other classifications lower than that. But it does not list the presidents of the United States because our founding fathers did not want this scenario to play out. They didn't want a political vendetta and the Constitution to be used to take out someone who is going to be running for the presidency of the United States. They felt that decision should be adjudicated at the polls. So this is just their, as I call it, Russiagate 27.0. And they've got 15 others coming down the pike that they've already planned be it through George Soros funded law for actions, be it through the DOJ and FBI weaponization, be it through the intelligence community's politicization of its process, they are going to come out. Maybe it's the new Brennan and Clapper initiative and figure out another way once this 14th amendment narrative dies off. But the one thing you have to remind the audience is the 14th amendment precludes secretaries of state. That is the 50 states of the United States of America from removing anybody from the presidency of the United States. It's that simple.
2: You make a point in your book, which I think is very important, that the whole notion of trials in D.C., particularly for conservatives, is crazy because, I mean, Trump got 5% of the vote. Any jury pool would be 19 to 1 against him. I mean, how can you talk about trial in front of your peers when your peers are 19 to 1 opposed to you before the trial starts? Isn't there something profoundly wrong about that?
3: It's profoundly, in my opinion, unconstitutional. That's why there are avenues to seek alternative jurisdictions. The United States Supreme Court has said that in those circumstances, when a jury pool is so tainted, and you cannot receive a fair jury, the Constitution mandates a fair jurisdiction, a fair venue. And The Department of Justice, just like Merrick Garland, when he lied last week to Congress under oath again about his handling of the Hunter Biden case and his involvement in the Trump prosecutions, it reminded me that the DOJ has been blurting out massive disinformation campaigns from the well of Congress for years. They keep saying, oh, it's longstanding DOJ principle. Well, when does principle trump the law, the Constitution of the United States? And I was just shocked to learn that we've gone on for decades allowing DOJ to get away with that statement. And in my book, I call for the Department of Justice's regulations to be changed, which is very easy to do. Any attorney general can do it and say that these cases, these politicized, these weaponized cases need, if they are going to be brought – I don't think they're brought lawfully, but if they're going to be brought, need to be subjected to a change of venue or bringing in another jurisdiction far, far away from Washington, D.C. It's very easy to do. People think it's unlawful, which is not the truth. And when you have an attorney general and an FBI director who repeatedly tell Americans that it's longstanding department policy to do things this way, I think that is a grotesque violation of the Constitution, but a tool that the deep state keeps in their back pocket to utilize all the time.
2: I want to thank you. I've always enjoyed since I think it was Vince Haley first introduced us back when he was a speechwriter and you were operating in the old executive office building. And you're amazingly smart and you are hardworking and you've proven again and again, that you're very courageous. Your book, Government Gangsters, is an important book. I have pre-ordered it and I encourage everyone to go and order it. We really are going to do all weekend to make sure people realize that government gangsters, the deep state, the truth and the battle for democracy is a key read in terms of the fight that we're now in. And I want to thank you. I'm grateful you would take this time to be with us.
3: No, Mr. Speaker, I'm very humbled. Thank you for having me on your show. As a younger conservative, I would look up to your leadership, and it's just really cool for me to now be face-to-face and talking about a book that I wrote. never thought a day like that would come. So thank you for your generous time and your uh, appreciation of our movement, and I'm sure we're going to see each other soon.
2: Thank you to my guest, Kash Patel. You can get a link to buy his new book government gangsters on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.